Take your copy of God's Word and open it up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, and we will begin reading in verse 17. I said to you last week that we were getting ready to enter the most pastoral, pastorally rich section in all of Scripture where Paul is going to speak concerning what the heart of the church should be and how that we look into Paul's own heart for the ministry and what he thought was important. And we can learn so much from what Paul would give us in Acts chapter 20. I would remind you that it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been purchased by His blood. If you want to scan your eyes down to verse 28, that kind of is the theme of the section. However, we won't get to that today. Listen to it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained or purchased with His own blood. Do you see the strength of that? The call upon pastors and or elders to lead the church. So the title of this section is going to be How to Care for the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to talk to us about that, and we're able to look into an autobiographical sketch of how Paul felt like this should take place. How do we take care of the blood-bought church of Christ? Most, if not all of us, realize there are some frightening and error-filled trends in the ministry world. Just saw this morning that the Pope of which I would not agree with at all theologically, but he was just talking about how that the prolonged trend of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church needed to be something they hit head on. We know full well that Southern Baptists are not excused from that call as well. We know recently articles that have been published about sexual misconduct and or ethical issues in church life that are not dealt with. One such trend arises, however, out of the temptation to compromise with the culture and to pander and to soft-pedal for the sake of drawing a crowd. We, we all realize that. We think about those things. We also see the moral failures that take place on the left and on the right, everywhere we look, divorce, adultery, financial impropriety. It pervades the landscape too often of the Christian world and Christian ministry. We've also seen... The things that remind us of the difficulty sometimes in ministry. We know that over 1,500 men leave the ministry every month. That's amazing. This is due at times to moral failure. It's due at times to depression or church contention. Acts 20 is a stinging rebuke for church leaders that are carried along by trends and fads to try to have the best shop in town. In his book called Working the Angles, Eugene Peterson says that pastors are leaving their posts, P-O-S-T-S. They're not leaving their churches, but they're leaving their posts. And instead of shepherding their flocks, they're leaving their posts. Instead of shepherding their flocks, they're trying to figure out how they can have and run a better shop. They're trying to figure out how to compete with the other shops 
down the street. They go to seminar after seminar, course after course, class after class, to learn how to keep a better and more lucrative shop. Well, Acts 20 is a rebuke to that kind of mindset. It's also a powerful tonic to the soul of those who seek to have a gospel-fueled, word-based ministry. It's a tonic for the soul as you read through what Paul's desire is. So this is a gripping message, gripping passage. It provides insight into the nature of the church. Like few passages, it unfolds for us God's plan for the church. It informs us of a pattern of biblical pastoral ministry. Those things need to be talked about in our day. He speaks to church leaders. He speaks to them in reference to his own commitments as perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived. So not only is God's word inerrant and infallible and inspired by God every jot and tittle, right? Every bit of it. But not only is that true, but we're able to hear what the priorities were from the finest pastor, missionary that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. So with that in mind, we should all consider how instructive this passage is going to be for us today. Now we're going to break it up into sections because I could not preach it in the amount of time you have today. Nor uh, could, I, could you handle that kind of information in one setting. So we're going to break it up. And I realize that First and Second Timothy and Titus are actually called pastoral epistles. And they have a lot to say to us regarding how the church should function. But this text is unique. There's never another time in the Bible that I know of where elders from a church are called together. And Paul, as uh, the lead elder and or... Uh, apostolic head at that particular time pours into them and teaches them what he feels like and what he has lived out before them, the priorities. So we may say this is a passage of pastoral theology for the church. Not only do we see kind of what ministry should be, but how a church should view theologically the role of a pastor. Do y'all find that interesting? So I'm kind of going to be preaching to myself today. But also to you, it's certainly unique. I have been influenced greatly by this text of Scripture throughout my days. I've never actually preached on it until I got here to chapter 20. And I've learned so much in preparation. And it certainly should shape our ideals as a church. It should inform us about what the church is supposed to be. Remember what happened. Paul decides not to go up to Ephesus. And instead he goes to Miletus. And the Bible tells us earlier on that he wanted to celebrate in Jerusalem, if possible, the day of Pentecost. And so he is in Miletus. And we don't know how many elders there were, but there's no question that there's a plurality of elders coming from Ephesus to Miletus to meet Paul. Let's read the text. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. The Bible says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus... And he called the elders of the church to come to him. So the elders from Ephesus are coming to meet Paul in Miletus. It's probably 25 to 30 miles. I'll make some comments about that in a moment. But he's beckoned them. He's asked them to come. And when they came to him, here's what he said to them. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials. 
that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is going to go throughout the whole chapter, uh, the, the rest of Acts 20. But for our purposes this morning, let's stop there. Again, there's a plurality of elders. They, they've come to meet Paul. And Ephesus, you think about this, Paul had spent how many years there? Over three years he had spent pouring his life into those believers in Ephesus. And here's the amazing thing to me. He doesn't leave the church unorganized. It's not some kind of charismatic free-for-all where everybody came in and believed everything they wanted to believe and acted any way they wanted to act. Paul strategically chose men, elders, to lead the church in Ephesus. Now think about that for a moment. He left it with organization and with authority in place to lead the church of God. That's what he spent his time doing. Not only winning people to Jesus in Ephesus, but also teaching the church how it ought to function. Order and structure in the church is necessary. Amen? He appointed leaders, organized the church. Here's something else that is impressive. These guys are going to travel 20 to 30 miles to be there, which in that time frame would have taken two to three days. Does that tell us something about the commitment of elders? Those who are called to shepherd the flock of God. He says to them, come to me. And they'll go two to three uh, days journey to meet Paul. Which means they also have a two to three day journey back to Ephesus. So they spend five or six days coming to the Apostle Paul. In order to hear what he had to say to them. Do you think they took their calling and commitment seriously? I would say absolutely. All right. What I want to give you, I want to give you some intangibles. I want to give you some necessary qualities of what pastoral ministry ought to be and what should an elder look for. How should he act? How should he live? I want to remind you that these, once these truths come out, they're also truths that ought to be in your life. There ought to be things that dictate how you think and how you live and what your purpose and mission is in the, on the face of this earth. And here's the first thing that Paul says to them. As an elder, as a pastor, in verses 17 through 18, he reminds us that we're called by God to live an exemplary life as you identify with the people of God. Did you see it there? Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders. Verse 18, and when they came to him, here's the first thing out of his mouth. You yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time. From the first day I set foot in Asia. That is to say, the Greek construction emphasizes not only that he just identified with them and lived among them, but he's saying something about his character. You know what my character looked like. You know the integrity of the ministry. You know full well how I lived among you. And here's what we know about these Ephesian elders. They would have known this experientially. Correct? They would have witnessed this in Paul's life. This is how I lived out my life as an elder before you. Listen to what he says to the Thessalonians. Very similar. 
If you can make it there before I read it, go ahead. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul would also speak to them about his example. So Paul would write 1 Thessalonians to the Thessalonican Christians, just like he wrote Ephesians to the, the believers that he's actually ministering to in Acts chapter 20. But listen to how Paul words this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. The Bible says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Same principle of example lived out before them. Paul will take that example that he lived before them. And he will write First and Second Timothy and Titus. And he will put in those books what the qualifications should be for an elder. For a leader in the church. And it, it flows out of his own testimony to the people that I lived in this kind of manner before you. For Paul, character mattered. And it should matter to all of us. For Paul, character mattered. His character served as a mantle of credibility to his ministry. He identified with the people. Notice that. Don't you love it? Not only was it about his character, but it was about identifying with the sheep that he pastored. One of my favorite books of all time is Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book called Life Together. And that's what a church is supposed to live with its pastor. Life together. That's what the Bible teaches about pastoral ministry. We live life together under the Word of God. Many pastors today are isolated from their people. But good pastors know their sheep by name. And I've tried that the last two and a half years. And I certainly know a lot more of your names than I did before I came. But it also requires involvement as well as transparency. You might say that the Apostle Paul had an open-hearted approach to ministry. That's why he could stay up all night, we learned the other day, teaching those in Troas what the Word of the living God has to say. That's why he would shed tears over the Christians in Ephesus, as it says in the text we're reading. Paul did not have a celebrity status ministry that allowed him to hide out in his office after he gave his speeches. As a pastor, if you're not willing to spend time with your people outside the pulpit, then can it really be said that you followed the Apostle Paul's pattern? Well, this causes us to think, right? Here's the greatest Christian who ever lived. Perhaps the greatest pastor who ever led a flock. Who planted church after church after church after church. Furthermore, if it were not for the Holy Spirit leading Paul, you would not be in these seats today. Aren't you thankful for the Macedonian call where the gospel went east? You better be thankful for that. That the gospel would hit us and that we would be able to send missionaries to the nations. But the fact is, Paul identified with his people and the very first thing out of his mouth was this. You've got to have character that follows the call of God upon your life. It really matters. You need to live an exemplary life. And you need to identify with the people. Here's the second thing. You need to serve the Lord with humility and passion. These things are not only true for your pastor, they're also true for you. Correct? 
Notice how Paul words this. Again, the Bible says, Serving the Lord with all humility. And what I've used the word passion for was to cover this. Tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So here is Paul talking about serving the Lord and doing so out of humility, but yet with passion. The word form that Paul is going to use for servant is, is guess what word? It's the word that we would originally think of as a bond slave. That is the construction. I'm coming to you as an ordinary slave. He didn't see himself as a prima donna. He didn't see himself as the status of ecclesiastical superstardom. He simply was an ordinary slave of Jesus Christ. It's what we ought to be, right? There was no sense of celebrity ship. But as he says in Romans 12, 11, not slothful in zeal, fervent in the spirit, serving Christ. The sum and substance of what Paul said he was among the people was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of Christ. There is, in our day, a celebrity mentality in the church. But here is Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, who, has, who had more experiences in ministry than everybody in this room put together, collectively. It would be safe to say that. And here's Paul saying to them that you know my life, you know my character, you know that I serve the Lord. That's good preaching, isn't it? That's a good understanding of what church life ought to be. From those who we would think are the highest up to the lowest. But in, in actuality, there's level ground at the foot of the cross. The access I enjoy to the Heavenly Father is the same access you enjoy. I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor. Right? We have but one great high priest. And he finished the course absolutely perfectly, paying for your sins past, present, and future. Hallelujah. What a Savior that we have. But notice what Paul says. He speaks that I did this service to the Lord in humility. I've, also, I've actually heard that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And we know that is true. I've also heard it said, humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've just lost it. Right? And that also is true. Does it really sound humble for a person to say to them, I serve the Lord in humility? We kind of shy away from that, don't we? We're like, well, it sounds like you're tooting your own horn, Paul, to say, I serve with all, notice, Allah's all humility. I think Paul could say this because the brothers had seen this humility in his life firsthand. They had seen him living out this example of humility. In our culture, I don't think we have the right, correct, biblical grasp of what the term humility means. We tend to think that humility coincides with claims of ignorance. In other words, humility is, is saying you don't know anything for sure. You don't have confidence in what you believe. For if you have confidence in what you believe, then you're arrogant. Is that not true? That's the way we see it often. If you claim to know something, you're confident in what you know, you are considered arrogant. So, in most people's eyes, the opposite of humility would be arrogance. 
But apostolic humility had nothing to do with Paul saying, now, in my humble opinion, this is what I think, but I'm not going to tell you the truth because if I tell you the truth and I, and I dare show that I have any arrogance at all and I actually deposit the truth to you, then you will think that I'm dogmatic. That's not the way Paul lived. If Paul knew the truth, he told it. If he knew the way, he would show it. Correctly? There's no doubt about it. For Paul, humility was not a sense of weakness. It was not a sense of compromise. It's not a sense that you have to defer to everyone and everything, lest you make a huge mistake and you assert yourself on something that you believe. That's not biblical humility. As a matter of fact, biblical humility is actually the gentleness and meekness of Jesus. Would you consider Jesus humble when he told the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're actually full of dead men's bones. You would say, whoa, that's not real humble. Christ actually said he knows something. He's asserting something about the Pharisees, and he absolutely is doing that. Paul exerted authority. He spoke the truth with strength. But he also exhibited the gentleness and the meekness of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ? Now, folks, get this. Christ is way more than an example to you. Don't go down that theological dead-end street. He was an example, but he's also king of glory. He's also the Lord. However, is he the gold standard, the golden standard for humility, meekness, and gentleness? I would say to you, he is absolutely just that. Paul lived that out. Back again in, second, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul puts this together. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Just listen. Paul said, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. In other words, it wasn't about the people's glory first of how Paul did the ministry. It was about whose glory? God's, right? And then he says... Though we could have made demands or exerted authority as apostles of Christ. But listen to this. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So let's put those two things together. You can be assertive and you can command certain things because the word of God does so. But you can do those things out of gentleness and meekness. And that's exactly what Paul was. He did so with Humility. He followed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would submit to you that Paul was a man of abdominal strength. With gentleness and meekness. Here's a man who had Jesus Christ all over him. But he, is, he was assertive in what he believed and he had confidence. He also served the Lord not only with humility but with tears. You see it in the text? Passion. Things in the ministry caused him to weep. I don't think that Paul ever came to the place where he was cynical when it comes to the ministry. Now, I'm going to tell you like it is. I went to school with some guys both times around, seminary and doctoral work, where people were cynical. I've been around church members who are way more cynical about the ministry than their pastors. But I've also been around a lot of men who become cynical about what takes place. I don't think Paul conducted his ministry with a take-it-or-leave-it kind of attitude. 
I don't think he was cynical when it came to ministry. I don't think he looked at those who rejected the message of the gospel and the word of God and just basically would say, to hell with you. I don't think Paul ever did that. Because for us not to be concerned at all about the lost going to hell, then that's probably our attitude, correct? Just, just get what you deserve. I don't think that Paul ever, ha- ever, ever had that kind of attitude. I don't think he ever said, well, too bad for you. We're going to move on to the next group of people. In ministry, it's a very easy thing to become cynical in pastoral ministry. For many pastors, I've never sensed this majorly, but there are a lot of pastors. I personally have not sensed a cynical attitude toward the ministry, but a lot of pastors do this. For many, it's a weekly temptation. Why? Because there are 101 different reasons. Because our souls are often bombarded, and it can make you become cynical. It's easy to say, it isn't worth it. It's easy for pastors to say, it just isn't worth it. Because you have to open yourself up, you pour yourself out, and oftentimes there is no reciprocation, period, to what's going on in the labor of ministry. Some people say, well, the dividends are very small. That's why I jokingly say I would sell this job at times for five cents, and I'd give you two cents in return. Right? There is a holy sense in which all of us are supposed to be called by God to spend and be spent for the glory of Jesus Christ. However, when you make that investment at times and you don't see fruit tangibly, openly before you, you think sometimes, whew, you become cynical. And for many ministries, many guys, that's why there are a lot of pastors in this world that are under clinical depression because of it. They get discouraged. And that's why 1,500 leave the ministry every single month in the United States of America. Paul says, I serve with humility and tears. I personally don't think Paul ever became cynical in the ministry. I think Paul finished his course faithfully right up to the end. And I believe the Apostle Paul was willing to pour himself out to people with his whole heart, whole soul, whether there was visible fruit or not. Sometimes, folks, the fruit he got from a city was to cause a riot. And they wanted to kill him and run him out of town. But I don't think Paul ever became cynical. When people rejected the gospel, I think Paul wept. When people came into the church and made a profession without a possession, notice the terminology, there are many people who walk an aisle in Baptist churches and they make a decision, but they didn't trust Christ. Folks, that happens all the time. True believers are regenerate. The heart of stone is taken out and the heart of flesh is placed in. Remember, the very ones that were the fruit of Paul's ministry became agents of the ministry. I dare say, if you never plug in to want to be an agent in the ministry, I don't think you've ever been fruit of a ministry. I'm not sure you're saved. Now think about that for a moment. Paul would go in and and he would weep. Uh, I'm sure there were tears when he preached Jesus and the cross, and some trusted Christ and some rejected. I'm sure there were tears involved with difficulties in church life when he was teaching those Ephesian believers to say no to the cultic ways of Artemis and Diana and stick to Jesus, right? I'm sure there were difficulties. And the Bible tells us that he was so utterly invested in his people 
that it broke his heart when he poured his soul into the work. If you take a summary reading through the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you're amazed at how rebellious these people were against Paul's ministry. Have you ever read through 1 and 2 Corinthians? I joke with y'all, when I'm down on you, I read 1 and 2 Corinthians, and I feel a lot better about you. It's amazing to read through there and just see how rebellious they were. And we're able to look in in an autobiographical way in 1 and 2 Corinthians of how Paul wrestles with these people. For this very reason, I've been a lot, around a lot of elderly pastors, and I've read a lot of books from theologians that were pastors. And many of those men, especially years gone by, would say to us, That we should never make close friends in our congregations. This is often the advice given to ministers. And for some of you that have served, you know full well what I'm talking about. Make sure your closest friends are not the ones that you pastor. Why? Because you'll get burned. These people you trust in and pour yourself out into will turn their backs on you and will turn against you. Does this happen in church life? You better believe it happens in church life. But I don't see Paul ever saying to a group of ministers, make sure guys, as he's preaching to them and teaching them at Miletus, make sure you guys never make close friends with the people in your church. Can y'all hear Paul saying that? Now, if you're an elder pastor in our church and you've ever given that advice, shame on you. We all forgive you, but that's not good advice. To say to young pastors, don't make friends with those in your church. I see Paul saying, you know what? Continue to pour your heart out into them. Be transparent. Give your whole all. Will you get burned? You better believe you will. Will you be taken advantage of? Yep, that's probably true too. But I must be reminded that someone infinitely greater invested himself in the lives of others, and he got burned too, and his name was Jesus. He is our model, correct? He is. He is our example. And the moment that kind of cynicism creeps into a ministry where a pastor feels that he has to be guarded at every point, that is the moment you can mark it down where the root of the vitality of that ministry is going to be severed. You mark her down. Paul was willing to be vulnerable right up to the end. Broke Paul's heart when people left the flock. Broke Paul's heart when people fall into sin. And I want to tell you something, folks, that happens at this church. It happens at this church. It's happened at this church when people fall into sin. It breaks the heart of a pastor when that happens. And I'm almost positive with a crowd this large, there's some of you that have fallen into a sin that if you don't turn around, God's going to bust you. And the fact of the matter is, if you're saved, you better be glad you get busted. Because the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he scourges and chastens every one of them. And if you don't ever receive chastisement, then you're an illegitimate child and you don't belong to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12. And I say, Lord, God, thank you that when we're prone to wonder, we feel the chastening hand of our Father. Why? Because His sheep hear His voice. And they follow Him. If you don't hear the shepherd's voice in your heart and life, you need to pump the brakes, folks. Something's not right. Something's not right if you don't feel that. But for Paul, there were certainly tears When people he walked with and loved and served with 
People who taught Sunday school classes at FBCO and served it. When you fall into sin, it grieves you. When people fall into sin, it ought to grieve our church. We ought not just wink at it. We ought to deal with it, which means there ought to be church discipline. Why is there church discipline? So that you'll repent and come back to God. But churches for the longest time have felt, oh, no, we got to keep a good shop around here at First Baptist Church. And if you call out anybody's sin, even if they're shacked up with their neighbor, then you're treading on thin ice. Well, I'm telling you, we're treading on thin ice when we don't do it God's way. Right? And so, we're reminded that Paul dealt with difficulties, brokenness. And notice the next thing he says is trials. And what I find interesting is that the trial that just pushed Paul away was a, was a trial among Gentiles. It was the Gentiles who started that riot in Ephesus. But who does Paul pinpoint? Many trials and tribulations among the Why? I mean, they're kinsmen. The very ones that were the light to the nations turn around, and when that light hits, which is Christ Himself, they recoil against the preaching of the Word. They reject their Messiah. But as we learned in Romans 11, God's got a plan for the future. Amen? And that plan is not for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. The plan is that Israel will be restored to the kingdom. Right? We know that's going to take place. In, but here's where he, these were his kinsmen. And they were persecuting him for preaching Christ. He talks to the Philippians about, through much suffering, this must happen. And by the way, y'all remember what the Lord said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 regarding Paul? This Saul, who's about to become Paul, you just show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. Y'all remember that? That's where it all started, the day he trusted Christ. So for Paul, trials and tribulations, those were the crucibles in his life to to perfect him and make him into what God would have him to be. So Paul said, I suffer all things in Romans for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. Paul knew full well what God had called him to do. So that's two things. How are you doing? God, help us live an exemplary life as we identify with people. And then, of course, this admonition from the Lord is to serve the Lord, which is a call not just for a pastor, but for everybody that names the name of Jesus. And to serve the Lord with humility and with passion. We've got one more. You ready? Verses 20 through 21. Don't y'all see why I broke this down for you? All right. Beginning in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you public from house to house and testifying both to Jews and Greeks about repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ. So Paul did not shrink back, and the terminology has to do with fear. When it came to proclaiming the truth, Paul was fearless. He wasn't going to shrink back from saying, now note this, some translations will read, I did not shrink back away from teaching and preaching to you everything that I thought was profitable for your soul. That's pretty strong, isn't it? He held nothing back. He considered what was profitable, not what was kosher. For everybody. Not what made everybody feel good, but what was profitable for the soul. He was filled with humility and gentleness, but also with boldness and courage. He gave them without reservation that which was good for their souls. Now, were some of those things hard to say? You better believe it, because I probably said some things this morning that you thought didn't set too well with you. That's a possibility. And this is true with Paul's preaching. It was true with his teaching. It was true with his counseling. If he refused 
to give them the truth, and he held his peace and didn't communicate God's word, then he was accountable to the Lord. So he did so without reservation. He didn't mind proclaiming the truth even when it got him in trouble. He was going to teach and preach the truth. Do you know that every pastor wants to be liked? Don't look at me so strange. I mean, it's true. We want to be liked. We want to be loved. I don't think there's anybody, anything profoundly wrong about the fact that pastors want to be loved and liked. I mean, who desires to sit under the ministry when the pastor's goal is to make everybody in the church possibly to hate him? That's not the goal. Now, I've been around some pastors, and I think that was their goal, to try to make everybody in their life hate them. Although some, again, uh, lean aside from truth and allow falsehood to permeate the church life so much so that they want to be liked. They don't want to ever deal with truth because they dare not want anybody to say, well, I don't like that guy. Well, we invest in you, all of our pastors. Many of them have invested in your life for way more than I have because I've only been here two and a half years. But we invest in your lives and we want to be liked. And if you want to be liked, it's easier not to say certain things. Correct? It's easier to avoid this subject or that subject. This comes into play most when we're preaching and counseling. And we have to apply what the Word of God says. It'd be better, it'd be easy for me to say, you know what? God said it in His Word. And the Holy Spirit's going to apply it. So I'm just going to let God deal with it. Well, that's not the way... It's taught to us in the Bible, is it? As a matter of fact, it's given to us where we have to make application. And again, that's when we usually get into trouble. When we try to apply what the Word of God says to our lives. Paul says, I didn't shrink back from saying what needed to be said for the good of their souls. Don't you love this? Paul was governed by a principle that was greater for him than to be liked. He was governed by a principle that said, if it's good for the people of God, I'm going to give it to them. Woke you up, didn't I? If it's good for the people of God, I'm going to give it to them. Sometimes that good stuff for the soul wasn't pleasant. Have you ever been here and heard me say something that wasn't real pleasant to you? And for some of you, you're thinking, why are you telling us all this? Because you never shy away from telling us what you're going to tell us. Well, you'd be surprised how we wrestle with that as ministers of the gospel. How that we sit when and study and preparation and we pour it over the word and we know what the application is but we we got to check in our spirit and we like man when I get to this place of application I might get in trouble or I may not be liked if I give this kind of application we all know from personal experience that in church life people when they get stung they respond with visceral reaction you know what that word means it means it's an inward feeling response and not using this, the brain. And you're, you're the same way. And you may have been the same way when I preached something. You had a visceral reaction where inward feelings came to the top with your emotion. You're like, oh, I repel against that. But you probably got home and read the Word. And the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and soul. So we're supposed to love God with the mind and the feelings, right? As a matter of fact, you better let what comes into your mind through the Word dictate your feelings. If not, you're in trouble. 
So the fact is, what usually happens in church life, even when you speak the truth directly from Scripture the way God gave it to us, normally it's not God who people are offended with. They get offended with the mailman. And you're looking at him. Right? That's usually what takes place. And Paul would say, I didn't shy away from teaching and proclaiming what is profitable for your soul. I told you. So to me, this is great motivation. Not to cut corners and pare down the application out of fear that I'm going to upset someone. Paul then says, I taught you publicly. And I taught you in house churches. In other words, I taught you in prominent social places. Paul says, I taught the Word of God right in the middle of the streets in Ephesus. I taught the Word of God wherever they gave me a hearing. But I also went from house to house. And we would take that to mean the little church plants all over Ephesus. Because we didn't have big buildings like this to come to. Right? When, when churches were planted, the first thing that took place was not a uh, 4,000 square foot structure on a place. For people to come gather, it was where they lived. And they gathered, and Paul says, in all those places, whether it was prominent or little small vestiges of people in a little assembly, I took every opportunity to preach the Word. I was with assembled groups that were large, and I was in smaller venues. Here's what I'd say about Paul. That guy was a preaching machine. Was he not? He was a teaching and preaching machine. Everything about him was to do that. He was with the sheep. And again, there's a notion in our day to assume that the shepherding model and pastoring model was only culturally for Paul's day. What do y'all think about that? As a matter of fact, there are people who have written books and believe that the best model today is to be more like a rancher and a herder of cattle. So that when you're in a monster mega church, what you really do is you fly over your congregation in a helicopter. And you're more like a rancher to corral them around. And most of the time it's with multiple sites and multimedia outlets so that it's a kingdom of me. Because usually it's the same preacher that preaches in all different locations. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just telling you, how is that the pastoral model given right here? How is that even possibly close to a pastor leading his people by becoming like them and in them and with them and identifying with them. We have to take a check. We have to ask ourselves about this. One pastor said it this way. Oh, well, let me just remind you of this. Yahweh God in the Old Testament was called an, under, uh, an overseer and a shepherd of his people. And when you get to the New Testament, we are called pastors and shepherds. And guess what Jesus Christ was called? The great shepherd of the sheep. So I would tell you that yes, pastor is a biblical model. It's not just cultural. And that's what God has called us to be. I read where one pastor said in his expression regarding being a pastor, you need to have your fingers in the wool. Isn't that good? And that is so true. I had this thought on my mind. Fingers in the wool. And I was walking out of Mercy Hospital. And for a goodly distance, I looked at a woman that was crossing in front of me, with, and she was limping. She went across, and she sat down at the entrance of Mercy Hospital. And so I, I walked straight by her, and I spoke to her. And as I spoke to her, she said, pray for me. 
And I said, yes, ma'am, I will. And, you know, I was busy. Celebrity status, right? And I take off walking out of mercy, and I'm like, nope, fingers in the wool. That was on my mind. So I turned around. I went back in there. I was interested in a couple of things. First, I was interested, why in the world did that woman, of all the people walking by her, stop me and say to me, pray for me? I was interested in that first. And second, I thought to myself, fingers in the wool. She's not one of my members that sits in my seat, but I'm not a pastor just here. I'm a pastor everywhere God sends me, right? I am most responsible for you, though. I'm, I have to be faithful and a steward to the one sitting in the seats of this building. I'm not worried about who's sitting everywhere else. I'm worried about you. But I was interested in that. And God convicted my heart. I went back and I knelt down with that lady and I prayed for her. She had all kinds of things. And what she basically said to me, that I looked like a preacher. No, I'm kidding. She just, I had on jeans and, and I don't, I, during the week I don't have my uniform on. She just said, I thought that you would pray for me. Man, I was just convicted in my heart saying, you know what? This is what we ought to be every day. Not just when we come show up on a Sunday morning at church, punch the clock. We're here, we, we fill out our card, but the fact of the matter is you're always serving God in humility. You're always serving Him with tears, and you're keeping your fingers in the wool. And notice how he concludes this teaching part. Testifying both to Jews and to Gentiles of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how the NLT responds. It says, I have had one message. Okay, I skipped something. I didn't give you my third point, right? Or did I? Did I give you that? Okay, good. Preach the gospel with boldness. Sorry about that. Look, here's the deal. When it came to faith and repentance, the eternal ramifications of ministry. Let me say it this way. Do you think Paul cut up and had a good time? Do you think that he... Could you ever... I could see Paul sitting in a Gentile's house, kicked back, eating pork chops, and saying this, boy, if my mama could see me now, right? Right? Because he wasn't supposed to eat pork chops, but man, what I bet when he ate that first one, he was like, whew, boy, what I've been missing, right? You know he had fun. You know he loved his people. You know he... But there's a sobriety and a solemnity when it comes to the major truths of the gospel. And if we can't get serious about repentance and faith, we're in trouble. You know what, folks? Those things have eternal ramifications. Immediately when you say the word repentance, you know what that underscores? We're sinners. And we're in a state of unbelief. And it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ and the quickening power of the Holy Spirit that we can move from a place of unbelief to belief in Christ. There's only one way we can be regenerated. And that's the quickening power of the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate our mind and give us understanding. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. It's impossible. Only the sovereign God of the universe. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Flesh and blood can't reveal that to you. Only my Father who is in heaven can give you my identity. It's impossible. So I want to remind you that he's testifying to these things. And all of us in this church, we can have fun, we can joke, we can joke around, but look folks, we're dealing with eternal ramifications when it comes to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not going to cut up. There's times when we need to be real serious about heaven and hell, about truth and error. 
And this word actually brings that forward. Paul says, I'm testifying to you. The, the word in the Greek couples together that sense of solemnity and sobriety and seriousness when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, I think Paul can enjoy himself just like I do with my church family. I enjoy you immensely. I love to laugh and cut up. But folks, we're dealing with eternal things when it comes to repentance. And do you understand that we traffic in holy things as a church? Are y'all awake? Don't pull, don't pull a Eutychus if you were here last week, if you're in the balcony. Think about that. We traffic in holy things. Repentance and faith. The message of the gospel, the message of sin. It's a message of a holy God. It's a message of a precious, suitable Savior to redeem us and reconcile us to our God. There's no margin of levity when we're dealing with issues of eternal importance. This was evangelical labor coupled with tears. And I do not like or desire to be some kind of ecclesiastical icon that everyone kind of looks up with and says, Woo, holy! That's not what I'm called to be. I'm called to be an ordinary man saved by grace through faith that has been called to preach and proclaim the Word of God until I drop dead. That's exactly what I've been called to do. Seriousness with repentance and faith toward God. How are you doing with that one? How are you dealing with the eternal ramifications of the message that we proclaim? I'm convinced that when it's all said and done, I want to be liked and loved. That's good stuff. Not profoundly wrong. But I will tell you this. I'm convinced that I would rather have you say, when it's all said and done, I know my pastor believed the word of the Lord, and he would die for it, and he wouldn't shrink back from telling the truth. I'd rather you say that than to say you like me. Amen? Amen. All right, that's a little bit about pastor ministry. Look. What about repentance and faith toward God? Are they a part of your life? Because I tell you, if you ever have repented and trusted Christ, and your life of faith began, then the rest of your life is going to be repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ. How are you living in that? Are you, are you living in that realm of repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us, Lord. And, and Lord, I know I, I've exposed and been transparent. Uh, Lord... But that's okay, Father. I know Paul was as well. And we learned so much from him about living among our people, identifying, living. And God, the greatest thing this church could ever do for their pastor is to pray for me. That I will live an exemplary life before the people I identify with. God, help me. And support. Lord, support the men of God when they've, they've studied and proclaimed the word and Lord, Father, help us. Help us all, Lord. May, may we all live lives that are exemplary, not just the pastor, but all of us. May we all serve you as a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And Lord God, help us to preach and proclaim with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.